0: Alright, good morning guys. Good morning. Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started a little bit late, almost on time. I'm excited to be here with you again, I'm excited about this passage we're going to be looking at, we're in Matthew chapter 20 still, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 34. Thank you for being here, for being on time, almost, right? Stay. It's taken me a few years to realize it's not actually Lakeview. I mean, that's, that's what's on the website, but it's, it's actually Lakeview, right? It's, it's, it's taken me a while to get it, but I, I get it now. That, that goes against everything I stand for, by the way. If you're not 15 minutes early, you're not on time. So, all right, let's, uh, Matthew chapter 20 is where we're at. Let's pray, and then we will jump right in. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is nourishment to our souls. It is precious to us. It is Your Word, but it is Your very words to us. Infallible, inerrant, trustworthy, dependable, reliable. And so, Father, I pray that this would would not just be another routine thing we do on Sunday morning, but that through Your Word we would encounter the living God So come help us. Be near to us by your word and through your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, by the calendar, Easter has come and gone. A few weeks ago, right? We've been doing this Easter-continued series, but Easter was a few weeks back. But by our study here in Matthew... Uh, We're just now on the verge of reaching what's known as the Passion narrative, Easter week, so to speak. We we need but flip forward one chapter to chapter 21, and we're going to hear the the crowds cheering as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. But we're not quite there yet. We have a little bit more, I believe, that Jesus wants to say to us before we get there. So we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 34, but let's start with verses 17 to 19 and a prediction of suffering. So look, if you would, with me at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged And crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Alright, so let's let's zoom out. Remember where we are. Jesus and the disciples have left the Galilean countryside up north where most of Jesus' ministry has taken place, certainly where most of Matthew's narrative accounts for it. They have worked their way southward. They're now in an area uh, to the east of the Jordan River known as Perea, and that's where chapter the events of chapter 19 took place. But here, in our text today, Jesus makes the turn westward toward Jerusalem. He has crossed back over the Jordan, and he started this last phase of his journey. And the phrasing Matthew uses here is interesting, perhaps even a bit awkward, but I think for good reason. Repetition in Scripture is to be noticed. It should stand out to us. And Matthew twice emphasizes that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He narrates for us in verse 17, writing, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and in verse 18, Jesus actually says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being at a higher altitude uh, than its surrounding lowlands. So, what's the implication here? What's he saying? What would, what would Matthew's Jewish audience and the disciples have thought of? Well, from any Jewish mindset, to say you're going up to Jerusalem would have invoked thoughts of celebration, of praise, of joy, even triumph. Remember, Jerusalem was, was not only Israel's capital, it's, its center of power, it was the city of David. This was where God's enthroned king sat. This, the, the temple was there. And for the past three years now, Jesus has been revealing himself as Israel's messianic king. And this reality has been slowly coming into view for the disciples. You remember Peter's great confession back in chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then right after that, he demonstrated that there is sort of this this fogginess still in front of who Jesus is and, and what his mission is, and so Jesus had to rebuke him. You remember that. And then there's this ongoing discussion, and we're going to see more of this today, about greatness in the kingdom. It seems to be a recurring topic for the disciples. So the reality of Jesus' identity and his mission is, is certainly dawning on the disciples, but it's dawning very slowly. And remember, Jesus, chapter 19, had just promised the disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. So all of that was there in their minds. So when Jesus says, okay, this is it, we're going up to Jerusalem, I think it likely that the disciples' minds would have gone to, okay, the kingdom is about to be inaugurated. This is it. Jesus is going to be enthroned. And indeed, He will be, but not how they probably imagined. But Jesus doesn't stop at we're going up to Jerusalem. Look back at verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This is the third time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. But now with the looming foothills of the Judean mountains there on the horizon, it seems that there's a particular urgency in Jesus' voice. He gives more details, more specificity about what is awaiting him. And, and we don't have time to unpack everything, but let's, let's look at what Jesus is actually laying before the disciples. He again takes up this son of man title. That was his preferred means of referring to himself. It's taken from Daniel 7 where this one like a son of man is given all rule and authority, all dominion, his kingdom will be everlasting. This was a, a messianic title. And here, before their ascent to the city of David, Jesus is once again clearly laying claim to the throne. But then look what he says. He goes on to say that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, meaning there will be a a formal condemnation. The ruling council of the Jewish nation of Israel will come together, acting on behalf of the nation itself, and utterly reject their Messiah. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. And so we have a, a complete picture, all of humanity being represented, Jew and Gentile alike They will reject Him. They will mock Him. They will beat Him. And now, in this this third prediction, He adds, they will crucify Him. They will crucify Him. And this is an instance where making connections to the Old Testament pays off. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 states this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Listen to this. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So the disciples were no doubt anxious in this moment, right? They, they were nervous about what this whole kingdom inauguration thing would look like. But Jesus has not only told them that he was going to Jerusalem to die, which is overwhelming enough, but that he's going to die by becoming accursed by God. You can look at Galatians 3.13. Paul spells that out very clearly. And and I would tell you to notice their response, but there is none. Not here in Matthew's account or in Mark's gospel describing the same event are we given any indication that the disciples ever gave any reply. Luke's account actually says that they just didn't understand the meaning was hidden to them it was like they were perplexed they were confounded about what jesus was saying in chapter 16 when jesus predicted his death for the first time peter got very upset if you remember oh that'll never happen in chapter 17 when jesus predicted his death for the second time matthew recorded that the disciples were greatly distressed but now jesus has just told them for the third time there there's not going to be a coronation there's going to be a cross and there's apparently silence. And we need to be careful about reading too much into what's not said in Scripture, of course. But based on what we're going to see in the following passage, right after this, at a minimum, we know that they haven't fully comprehended what Jesus is saying. They, they like the idea of going up to Jerusalem. For them, that meant kingdom glory, kingdom power, prestige, now, in this life. But Jesus is going to suffer? It, it, it just didn't add up. It didn't make any sense by earthly calculations. And, and we do the same thing, right? We're good at this. We look at our difficult issues in our lives. We, we stare at that broken relationship. We look at that burden that hasn't budged in years. We, we try to ignore that strain in our marriage, but it, it just keeps showing up we grieve over that adult child who's going every way but toward God. We look at this brokenness around us and we do our, our little humanly calculations and it doesn't add up. When we run our numbers, we can't see how it's going to come out. And, and we're tempted toward hopelessness, to despair. But what if in that moment, the moment when the disciples were presented with what seemed to be an utter impossibility. The idea of Jesus going to rule and reign on one hand and this dying on a cross on, a, uh, on the other. What if in that moment they knew something of a God who isn't limited by earthly calculations? What if they knew a God who turns hopeless situations into hope filled situations, who can turn a spirit of despair into a garment of praise? who can look upon the cold, rebellious heart of a wayward child and breathe life into them? What if they knew a God who ushers in victory through apparent defeat and loss? What if, what if in that moment of not seeing how any of it added up, they knew of a God who defies all humanly possibilities? Would it have made a difference? Does it make a difference for us? In our practical, everyday lives, does knowing this God make a difference for us? I hope it does. I hope it makes a difference for you and and for me. I hope hope we realize and are reminded this morning and and are encouraged to know that our small, finite, little humanly calculations, they don't work in the kingdom. We serve a God who is always doing more than we can see. Always. But the disciples, it seems, weren't looking beyond themselves. And this will actually be made even more clear in this next exchange. So let's look at verses 20 to 23 in a petition for status. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, "'Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, "'one at your right hand and one at your left, "'in your kingdom.' "'Jesus answered, "'You do not know what you are asking. "'Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?' "'They said to him, "'We are able.' "'He said to them, "'You will drink my cup, "'but to sit at my right hand and at my left "'is not mine to grant, "'but it is for those for whom it has been prepared "'by my Father.' Now, to go from such a solemn moment with Jesus predicting his own death, dying on a cross, to this rather self-seeking request is striking, and it's meant to be. This would be like you you're telling someone they have cancer, and they reply with, can I get in on your will, kind of thing. Very inappropriate question. <laughs> but, but this issue, it's, it's an old favorite, right? Chapter 18, it was the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Luke 22, the very night before Jesus goes to the cross, in verse 24, it reads this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is the night Jesus is betrayed and this is their topic of conversation. And so now this, the mother of, of James and John, that's the sons of Zebedee, is showing herself to be a part of this self-seeking quest. Apparently she's caught wind of these thrones that Jesus has promised the disciples and perhaps their nearness to Jerusalem has brought the issue to the forefront for her. And it's worth noting that Mark's account of this scene focuses in on the request as actually coming from James and John themselves. But even here in Matthew, Jesus shows by his direct reply to them that they are certainly in on it. That the mother's not acting alone here. This is a group effort. And this exchange, this this interaction, it calls to mind throne room language. a, A scene that would play out in a king's court, perhaps. This coming and kneeling before Jesus, and Jesus turning around and stating, tell me your request. What do you want of me? This is recognition of Jesus as king, but without comprehension of the kingdom. And so she replies in verse 21, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She's, she's pursuing kingdom honor, but without the prerequisite of kingdom humility. She wants the benefits of having access to the king, but she's missed the part about how, about how greatness is bestowed in the kingdom. She's asking for the two most prominent positions, positions of power. So picture the, the State of the Union address, right? You've got the president sitting there directly behind him to his right, the vice president directly behind him to his left, the Speaker of the House. That's the prominence she's aiming at. That's the status they're seeking. And by the ways of the world's power structures, this petition, it just it makes sense, right? It's dog-eat-dog it's dog out there. And if you want to get a leg up in the world, it's all about who you know who you can use to get to the top, what can you do for me if you're going to have success in the world? But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself will be great in the kingdom. And he has just said in chapter 19, the first will be last, and the last first, and now this mother runs up to him and says, I want my boys to be first. Can we say that the point has been missed? And so Jesus responds, look at verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. You have no idea what you're saying. His tone is one of rebuke. You don't have a clue about what you're asking of me. And he turns to James and John and he asks, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What's he talking about? What's this cup Jesus is referring to. Well, from numerous passages in the in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, we know the cup is often used metaphorically to describe pain and suffering, even devastation that is brought by way of God's wrath. And I wrote a couple passages there in your notes for you to look at. But l- listen to how Isaiah addresses the nation of Israel in chapter fifty-one, verse seventeen. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And flip over to Matthew chapter 26. A few chapters forward. Jesus has gone to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of His betrayal. Peter and James and John are there with Him. And pick it up in verse 38. Then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the same cup. And I I know some people don't like to talk about God's wrath like it's a blemish on His character. Jesus would not agree with that. This is a cup of God's perfect and just wrath, and and it has been prepared by Jesus from the Father. Jesus asked Peter in John chapter 18, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This, this cup is a vessel from which God will pour out his righteous judgment onto Jesus as the bearer of our sins. And, and Jesus is asking James and John, Are you able to drink this cup? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Jesus alone can bear this burden. He alone will suffer like no man has suffered before. Not just physically, but with the ultimate agony of divine displeasure and forsakenness of the Father by becoming sin. No, you you cannot drink this cup. But listen to their response. They, They don't get it. Verse 22. They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In the eternal designs of of Jesus serving as our sin bearer, no, they will not drink that cup. But Jesus shifts focus and replies with their specific futures in view. You will share in my suffering, he's saying. You will have a portion of my cup, not the fullness thereof, but you will know something of my pain and suffering and humility. And we know that both James and John will go on to suffer. James will be beheaded, and John will spend, out, spend the rest of his life as, a, as an exile on the island of Patmos. So yes, they will know suffering for following Christ, but, but these right-hand and left-hand positions... Jesus says they're, they're not for me to give out. Those have been assigned by the Father himself. And it's as though he's saying, if, if those are of no concern to me, you certainly should not be concerning yourselves over them. But they are concerned about them. It's not just James and, J- James and John, it's, it's all of the disciples. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. This, this was not righteous indignation. This was jealous indignation. They were mad because they didn't think about asking Jesus for two special seats. This is childish grumbling. And Jesus calls them on it. Verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is pointing to the world's way of achieving greatness. These, these leaders who step on the little people to achieve position. They, they domineer and dictate and rule by the power. They hold over others. It's, it's privilege through power. Holding yourself above others because of your position or title or status. It's really just thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And I was reminded this week, sadly, that this stuff is in me. It's there in me. Just a few days ago, actually at work. I'd had this text on my mind, been mulling these truths over, preparing for this morning, and I had a, a young enlisted sailor um, not give me the appropriate military courtesy I thought I deserved, and I bristled, right? My, my flesh rose up and my mind said, don't you know who I am? And he didn't, by the way. He wasn't being disrespectful. He, I wasn't in uniform and he didn't recognize me. But everything in me just rose up. It's there in my flesh. But within seconds, I would say, felt like the Holy Spirit drop-kicked me. Anyone ever experienced a drop-kick by the Holy Spirit? Not what I would call a, a pleasant experience, but it is God's grace. It is His undeserved grace. But we're, we're prone to this. It's, it's in us. We, we want to be important. We want recognition. We want praise. We want others to marvel at us. And God says, I didn't design you to be marveled at. I didn't design you to receive glory. You don't know how to handle glory. When you try to handle glory, all you do is hurt yourself and those around you. And so Jesus is explicit here. Look at verse 26. It shall not be so among you. We might need to just remember that phrase. It shall not be so among you. In a world that screams at us 24 hours a day to think of ourselves first, to take care of you first, we need to hear this. You as in the disciples, but also you as in anyone in my kingdom, meaning us, This this type of self-promotion, self-aggrandizement is not to be among you, Lakeview Christians. Get rid of it. But, look at verse 26 again, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The, The contrast of where we started with The petition for status, the request for these two prominent seats to where Jesus has just landed is remarkable. Jesus has come full circle to their request, and it it doesn't end as they hoped. But imagine for a moment, imagine some big-shot college professor, well-known, written a ton of books. He's being recruited by the most ivy of the Ivy Leagues. This guy's really something. And he's he's quick to show you his credentials to prove it. He has gone and, and interviewed for the job and, and he's accepted the position. Prestige and honor await him. But when he he shows up on campus, he's escorted to his office, he sees there on the door not not his name embossed in gold, not his title. But he reads the words, janitor's closet. And he's handed a mop and a bucket. Not exactly the prominence he was hoping for. But the disciples, they were aiming at the two most prominent, most privileged positions in all of the kingdom. But as Jesus ushers them to their seats, they see the words, servant, verse 26, and slave, verse 27. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The Greek word for servant here is diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon from. It was a, actually a secular word, meaning to serve someone as in food or do menial, low-end work in society. It's taking care of household duties. It has to do with seeing to the needs of others. And the word slave here is doulos, very common in the New Testament. It is someone who was not free to do what they wanted, but is instead bound to serve a master, someone who carries out the demands of another. Servant, slave. Two seats of status? No. Two lowly positions of sacrificial service? Yes. And, and this is central to Christianity. I hear people say something like, oh, she has such a servant's heart. And I know what they mean. And that's, a, that's a great thing. I've probably said that myself before. But if we're going to be biblical, having a servant's heart shouldn't be optional for Christians. Like like you've got the standard package that all Christians are come, come equipped with, but then you've got this special add-on servant's heart package you can choose or not choose. That's not the way it should work. I tell my kids all the time, words have meaning. I think they'll probably put that on my tombstone one day. Words have meaning. And we use this word follower all the time, right? It's a good churchy word. I'm a follower of Christ, she's a follower of Christ. But I think we can actually lose the impact of of what it means. If if we claim to be followers of Jesus, breaking news this morning, we actually have to follow Him. And everywhere He goes, He goes to serve. It's, It's not like we can sit over here doing nothing, and Jesus is over there serving and say we're following him. You see, it doesn't work like that. He's over there. I'm over here. So in light of what Jesus is laying before us, a simple question for us this morning. Where are we serving? What can you point to in your life right now? What can I point to in my life right now that is costing us something? time, energy, money that we're doing in the service of following Christ? Are we following Him? Jesus came to serve. And that's, that's exactly where Jesus ends this exchange. He has said, you become a servant, you, you take up a position of a slave, and then look at verse 28. Even as... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' greatness comes in part from his utter humility. Great leaders never give orders they themselves aren't willing to execute. And Jesus was certainly willing he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's from Philippians 2. Jesus set the ultimate example for us in serving. But as soon as I say that word example, there's a risk. There's a danger here. You may have not seen it, but the gospel itself hangs in the balance right here. If Jesus is just an example, and He goes around serving people, well, all I have to do to get to heaven is follow His example. Right? Right? Do good to others. Serve them. Love others. Don't be judgmental, for sure. Be kind to one another. No. I hope we would all say no a thousand times. No. Jesus doesn't say He's just our example. Though He is definitely that. 1 Peter 2.21 states, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If we claim to be Christians, Jesus better be our example. He better be our example. But Jesus doesn't claim to be a mere example. Look back at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, that's the example part, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that's an example you and I can't follow. The reality of Jesus giving his life as a ransom, as a payment to redeem God's people, it sits here in verse 28 to correct any wrong ideas that spring up about serving our way into the kingdom. This idea of ransoming someone or something, redeeming them, by way of a payment, flows from the earliest histories in the Old Testament. It's the idea of of releasing someone or something, a piece of property, releasing it from bondage, releasing it from captivity through a payment. And Jesus, here in this moment, just days before he will go to the cross, he is gathering up all of those redemption stories, all the times God redeemed his people from bondage in the Old Testament. All of the judicial law practices of redeeming an animal or a property or a firstborn. He's saying all of that was a foreshadowing about what I'm about to go and do. He's trying to help his disciples. He's trying to help us. He's saying, I am going to establish my kingdom, but I'm going to do so by ransoming my people from the captivity of their sin by offering the payment of my very own blood. And unless I go and do that, all the sacrificial serving in the world will be of no account. None. It's not, it's not Jesus plus your serving. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's the shed blood alone of the Son of God that we are ransomed. That we are redeemed. And with Jerusalem now so close, Jesus wanted them to understand. And He wants us to understand this. And so we come to this last scene of this, this section of Matthew's Gospel. And it's as though now on the verge of all that awaits him in the coming days, Jesus wants to, to put an exclamation point on all that he's been teaching in these last few sections. I hope you've noticed how tightly connected these sections have been. And how much context is important in understanding Scripture. But it's as though he wants to put an exclamation point. And all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they include this this marvelous little encounter before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's look at these last five verses. And a plea for sight. Verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? That should sound familiar. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. So for the past few chapters, Jesus has been tipping over every worldly structure He's come to. The world's thoughts about greatness don't apply to the kingdom. The world's calculations about hard, perplexing issues, they don't work when it comes to God. The world's idea of who should and shouldn't be honored have no bearing on God's ways. Remember when Jesus wanted wanted an example of greatness? He didn't point to some famous political military leader. He, He took a child up in his arms and he says, this is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. He's inverting our ways of thinking again and again. And since the beginning of Matthew's gospel... We've witnessed people interacting with Jesus, right? They have even seen his miracles. And many of them, even ones we would have expected to get it right, the religious, the prominent, they walk away having completely missed the reality of who he was. The identity of Jesus has been at the forefront of all these passages. And it's been surprising at who has seen him and who has not. And so this last encounter, you'll notice that the setting has changed slightly. Moving westward along the road from Perea over the Jordan to Jerusalem, the first town they would have come to was the town of Jericho. And Mark's and Luke's account, accounts state that they were coming into Jericho. But we read here in Matthew that they were going out. So what's this all about? Well, it, it may simply be due to there actually having been two different Jerichos, two different cities, one old city in ruins and one new city that had sprung up basically right next door to the older city. So it may simply be that they were traveling the connecting road between the two and so there would have been two different perspectives. And beggars along this road there would have been just as common for them as it is for us today to see the homeless standing on the side of Street corners in New Orleans. I see them all the time. And it's likely they, these two beggars, they took up these positions every day to beg for their survival. This was obviously not a, a sanitary enterprise. They probably would have stayed covered with the filth and the dust of the road. These were outcasts. They were outcasts of society. The lowest of the low. They contributed nothing to society, but they relied on anyone who would give them a little bit of anything to survive. And so these two men, they, they hear the commotion of this large crowd approaching. And somehow, they hear the name Jesus in the roar of the noise. Look at verse 30. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Now stop right there. Do you realize how we New Testament... Believers read the New Testament like New Testament believers? We should, that's a good thing, but we need to be careful because when we do, we might just read over the fact that two, these two blind men have just identified Jesus as the son of David. And we say, well yeah, Jesus, son of David, we've read the book, that's who he is. But these were two blind men, two beggars, very likely to have had no education, the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low in first century Palestine, sitting on the side of a dusty road 200 miles south of where most of Jesus' ministry has taken place, and at the name of Jesus, they immediately cry out, Son of David. These two blind nobodies have just zeroed in on Jesus' identity. They've cracked the code for Israel's long-awaited Messiah. They nailed it. Son of David. Where did these theologians come from? Where did this awareness come from? We can imagine that the word of this Jesus of Nazareth has spread. Talk of his healing, talk of his miracles has likely reached the streets of Jericho and they've overheard something about it. And that would explain the informational part of their knowing about Jesus, right? We could very easily understand that. But how did that information go from street-level hearsay to truth so powerful? They cry out with abandon. Look back at verse 30. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. They were screaming with everything in them. They were in a frantic frenzy to come before this Jesus for mercy. Mere information was not driving these screams. It was something far deeper. It was an awareness, at least on some level, that Jesus actually had the authority and the power to grant them mercy. But how did that happen? we're not told. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we're given another very similar example of such recognition. You remember after Peter had confessed Jesus to be the Messiah? The very same, same thing that these two blind men have just done. You remember what Jesus told him? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And and by their frantic shouts, we know they weren't throwing themselves on the mercy of mere hearsay. They They were casting every last vestige of hope they had. This was their one shot to come before this Jesus. We don't know how much they understood, but we do know that blind though they were, lowly, poor, unclean, outcast of society, though they were, being silenced by the crowds though they were, they perceived something about Jesus that so many before had missed. And their faith got Jesus' attention. Look at verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Above the noise and the commotion of the crowd, Jesus heard these two voices of these two blind men, and he stopped. He stopped. Consider for a moment that all of Scripture, all of history, mind you, has been bending toward what's about to happen to Jesus. He has known from all eternity the agony and suffering that awaits him. He is merely days away from bearing the sins of the world and fulfilling God's long-promised plan of salvation. And with all of that looming before him, he stops. This is a marvelous reminder of our Lord's compassion. I wonder if we recognize Jesus in this moment. Are we familiar with this aspect of our Lord's tender care? This Jesus who stops. This is, I don't know about y'all, but this is a comfort to my soul. But this scene has a familiar feel to it. At least it should if we're paying attention. Remember the scene with the mother coming before Jesus and Jesus telling her to, to state what you would have of me. Tell me your request. Well, the same thing is happening here. Jesus has looked upon these two blind men and has said, what do you ask of me? But notice the difference in how this scene plays out. Verse 33 again. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. As opposed to seeking a a privileged life of status, these two blind men sought the mercy of the great physician. The eyes of their hearts already perceived what many others didn't. And now they would have physical eyes to see the Savior. And I love how this ends. Jesus touched them. He wasn't worried about getting dirty. He touched them and he healed them. He granted their plea for sight and I think he granted more than just physical sight. I think he granted the fullness of what their faith had perceived in part. Why do I say that? Look what they did upon beholding the world with this newfound sight. Imagine seeing all of the colors, the brightness, everything for the first time. Look at those last three words. And followed him. They followed him. Their whole identity had been wrapped up in being blind, but now in this moment of being set free from the bondage of their blindness, there was but one thing they wanted to do. In Mark's account, he writes that after healing them, Jesus said, Go your way. And what was now their way? It was the way of Jesus. They followed Him. It was the way of the Son of David. It's interesting. We'll end right here, but it's interesting. Matthew begins his gospel with these words. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And now, here on a dusty road, leading up to Jerusalem, the profession of two blind men. Not two Jewish religious leaders. Not two prominent men of society. Not two wealthy men. two blind nobodies. Their profession will serve as a springboard into chapter 21, into the crowds cheering, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week, chapter 21. Thank you guys.